At what point should a cyber attack be treated as an act of war? Professor Bud Schur joins me to discuss. This is the UNH Law Podcast. Learn more about the law school and apply by visiting law.unh.edu. Opinions discussed are solely the opinion of the faculty or host and do not constitute legal advice or necessarily represent the official views of the University of New Hampshire. So, Buzz, before diving in, we should have a general preface that most countries attempt cyber intrusion against foreign nations. This is just the norm nowadays. We, you know, several years ago, and, and the, the U.S. is right in there with that. The U, uh, several years ago, the U.S. launched a cyber attack, uh, uh, I think it was called Stuxnet, yes. on the Iranian uh, nuclear capabilities. Everybody does. The distinction that's worth thinking about is state-sponsored cyber attacks and then hacker cyber attacks. Yeah, independent Independence hackers. hackers. Uh, for example, uh, there are independent hackers in the Ukraine have been launching cyber attacks for many years. That said, you know, we there's evidence that China, North Korea, Russia, the United States all have used some form of what I would call state-sponsored cyber attacks. North Korea, with regards to hacking Sony Pictures because they released a (laughs) film they weren't happy about. Right. And, you know, another iteration of cyber attacks is cyber espionage. Yeah. And yet another iteration is the theft of trade secrets from private companies. Yeah. So uh, cyber economic espionage is what I would call that. So there's a lot of iterations of it. The, the most interesting one, at least the topic for today, is when does a state-sponsored cyber attack constitute a declaration of war? Yeah, and this is totally eating up the news cycle this week with uh, regards to the New York Times revealing that the U.S. was deploying cyber tools against the Russian power grid. Exactly. Well, personally, what's so interesting about that is uh, I'm doing, uh, I have, we've had plans for me to do a webinar next Tuesday at 12 o'clock called uh, Cyber Attacks and the Coming Power Grid Apocalypse, uh, provocatively entitled. (laughs) Um, Which I'll I'll post a link to in the episode description if you're interested in that. The idea behind that is we know that Russia... China and maybe one or two other companies have the capability to shut down large portions of the power grid in the United States. Uh, Russia has done that in the Ukraine. They've done that to some extent in Estonia. Uh, the uh, the director of the NSA uh, four or five years ago came out and said, yeah, there's three or four countries, including Russia and China, that have that capability and we need to prepare for it because uh, when you shut down the cyber, the power grid of our region, like the eastern seaboard, with a cyber attack, even though virtually every power grid system has many, many redundancies for, you know, natural disasters of various sorts. When you're shutting, when you're attacking and disabling the computer systems, 
um, you take away virtually all of the redundancies. All of the redundancies are are cyber based in in the huge majority of circumstances. So it really creates a situation that feels closer to the apocalypse. Right. You know, nothing works. Banking system doesn't work. Electricity. There's no electricity. Even the supply of gas is now managed by computers. Right. Uh, the oil supplies are managed by computers now too. So everything is, let's call it cyber based. And so you're disabling communication system, air traffic, cell phones general won't work. So street lights won't work. Everything even, if the, even if the Eastern seaboard is the only thing that's shut down, how are you going to communicate with anybody there? Emergency up systems, you know, it's, it's really, uh, it's something that we're behind in preparing for. We, we, you know, the U.S. is really good. Put aside individual complaints with individual natural disasters, which there are certainly always some. But the U.S. by and large is as good a country as there is in in managing disaster relief from a natural disaster, a hurricane, a flood, uh, an ice storm. Um, but this is a, a of a different order, and yeah. you know I don't think we're ready for it. So I don't think any country is really ready for it. So the the, the putting that aside, yeah. the question is separate from that. If 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 a country, a foreign country, were to shut down the power grid of the eastern seaboard, and there's a good bit of evidence that suggests if they do it the right way, if they're intentionally destructive, it'll last for like several months. It's not like a two-day thing. It'll last for several months. Depending on the time of year, if it's cold, people will die. Uh, there you know, billions and billions and billions of dollars of economic loss. So should we treat that as a declaration of war as a country? Should right. we respond in kind with a cyber attack on Russia? Should we, is there any kind of cyber attack that would uh, be worthy of a military boots on the ground response? Um, you know, those are questions that we are not really talking about. I've, I've written uh, a couple articles, uh, one in a multi-volume set on uh, national security, another that's coming out in terms of the power grid that's coming out in the FBI's uh, National Academy's um, uh, quarterly uh, magazine uh, th at the end of this month. Uh, and I've lectured in in. Europe and in this country on on this issue, but there's no there's very little law. Right. Uh, the only, it's so new. I mean, law uh, takes time to go through, and there hasn't so. there really hasn't been anything that catastrophic that's happened. Well, it, it, yes and no. Um, no, in that it's not a power grid fail. You know, there hasn't been a power grid in this country. Yeah, uh, so yeah. Specify it's nothing. Hasn't been anything that extreme in this country. There from has been a government in the side. Ukraine right. and Estonia. Several years ago, Russia shut down the banking system for a few days, and the government system in Estonia, a small, form, independent country, former Soviet republic. Estonia at the time and still is was a member of NATO. NATO has something called Article 5, which says when one member is attacked, every member is attacked, and every member comes to the aid of that member who's been attacked. Mm -hmm. 
Estonia appealed to NATO and said, we invoke Article 5, we have been attacked, we want you to defend us. And NATO said, wow, we haven't really thought about this, so we're not going to count this as an Article 5 attack. Because Article 5 was written thinking only of boots on the ground, boots on the ground missiles. air attacks, things like that. The less antiseptic uh, war. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the, the term I've coined for, for cyber attacks are, to date, the, they are the most antiseptic form of warfare yeah. that there is. You never enter the country physically. Uh, you can do it without killing anybody. But you can completely disable a country. Now, you go back to the 19th century, and there was not air attacks. We get into the 20th century, and you have air raids, much more antiseptic type of cyber uh, of warfare than you know boots on, literal boots on the ground warfare. You uh, you get into the later part of the 20th century, and you have drone attacks, a little bit more antiseptic than uh, than typical air raids because there's no pilot, you no human being has entered the country, just a mechanical device. And for the most part, the loss of life to the the victims of said attacks would be kind of small by comparison to yeah. sending an army into the battlefield. So cyber attacks are of a different order of magnitude completely. They're almost completely, in the sense we think about warfare, completely antiseptic. Yeah. And Article 5 doesn't contemplate that. And until very recently, the Army's Law of War Manual, which was the governing, uh, governing loosely, which was what told the Army or the Navy or the Air Force what counted as an attack and therefore how they could respond and how they could respond proportionally, that didn't even, until its most recent revision, didn't even think about cyber attacks. So the NATO, to go back a bit, NATO said, whoa, this is a problem. And they put together uh, a group of experts uh, from around, uh, among the NATO countries. And they published a manual several years ago called the Talin Manual, T-A-L-I-N-N, Talinin Manual. It's it's, um, the capital of Estonia, actually. Uh, that started to investigate in the context of international war, what should count as a, a when a cyber attack counts as an attack and when you are under the law of war uh, morally justified in responding and what counts as a proportional response. The basic concepts we're talking about have been around in international, the international law of war idea for a century or more. That is what kind of attack counts as a declaration of war? What kind of attack counts as something less than that, but in which you are entitled to respond? What counts either for the first kind of attack or the second kind of attack as a proportional response? There's a very well-developed body of international law of war war, but until very recently, particularly with the Talon Manual, it hasn't even thought about this. And the Talon Manual is only recommendations. Uh, oh, it's, really? It's, it's, so not, it's not, it's not even... binding on anyone. And I mean, the, one of the problems yeah. here is, and, you know, uh, and the UN hasn't really sorted this out formally yet either, that NATO is separate from the UN. And much smaller. Yeah. <laughs> and much of the law of war flows from what's been settled on with the UN. But the problem is always when you're devising international standards in the area of law, 
Boy, you think it's hard getting a bill through Congress. You know, coming to an international treaty on something that everybody agrees on takes 10 years anyway. Um, so, and the U.S. doesn't want to accidentally have to end up in war with Russia for a, a city power grid in Estonia, a very small country by comparison. I mean, that'd be a tremendous loss of life if we got into a full-blown war with Russia. Yep. So what if we launched in response to the shooting down of uh, the drone by Iran this week? What if we dis- decided a proportional response would be a some kind of cyber attack on the nuclear facilities again in Iran? Would Iran think of that as a declaration of war? Uh, the problem is we're flying by the seat of our pants. We haven't spent thoughtful calm time sorting out these issues. So that makes it much more likely that it will be relatively thoughtless, more emotional, and hyper-stressed decision-making that leads to outcomes that if we thought it through outside the context of a particular attack, we might actually have a set of standards that ask us to to operate differently. Do you feel like it's really possible considering the lack of kind of history and precedent on something like this? Can we really come up with a very informed response to attacks like this? Yes. uh, We as a country can. It's a difficult process. There's lots of layers to it. There's lots of quote unquote stakeholders. Uh, But I think we can, but we need to have the explicit conversation about it. And that's what my writing has focused on is, you know, I don't quite put it this way, but it's almost as if I don't care what the standards we come up with are. Let's at least come up with some basic standards, because depending on who the president is, you know, we can have wildly different responses to what in the immediate sense feels like a very aggressive cyber attack. Let me go back to the most well-known cyber attack of all, the hacking of the Democratic National Committee's (laughs) email by a state-sponsored entity in St. Petersburg, Russia. Who knows what actual effect that had and what came out of that, the emails that were seized and were published through WikiLeaks. Uh, that'll be debated forever, and it's hard to measure. But, you know, it, 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 in 2020, if there's a cyber attack that completely uh, de- takes away the credibility of the electoral process for the presidential election in 2020. It's really not hard to conceive of a cyber attack that would do that. I mean, there's evidence that the Russian cyber attack uh, infiltrated uh, not only the Democratic uh, National Committee's emails, but also the election system in Florida and some other states. Unclear whether they actually did anything or changed any votes and probably not. But, you know, it's not hard to imagine uh, uh, that enough of that happening in 2020 to destroy any credibility in the results. And, you know, as you know, and pretty much everybody knows, we're always well prepared for the cyber attack that just happened, <laughs> not the one that's about to happen. Exactly. I and mean, that's like I was saying before with precedent and figuring out um, we always know how to fix something we've already broken. 
<laughs> it's a very different situation for predicting, especially with nowadays where everything in our lives is data connected more and more every day. Yeah. And another layer of it that's really interesting, and it speaks of how how difficult for it how difficult it is for us to think in a future way, a future forward way. You look at the Talon Manual and the second edition of the Talon Manual and the additions to the Law of War, Army's Law of War Manual, and all of them try to figure out what cyber kind of cyber attack counts as an attack for war purposes based on analogies to traditional warfare. And there's that only works. Yeah, if people are being killed by the cyber attack, that actually works. That's like a no brainer for, for the military side. Yeah, it's the problem is the antiseptic attacks that shut down that the way. power grid and kills two people. Yeah. Or, or there's a the, financial impact instead of a loss of life or right. property impact. Or the, you know, the one that the, 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 the kind of the more, the most antiseptic cyber attack, which destabilizes our electrical mm -hmm. system, electoral system, and we, we lose credibility in the results. What a profound attack on democracy uh, as it operates in this country, such as it operates. Very hard to restore once that has happened. Nobody's killed. There's no analogy to the past that measures whether that should count as a declaration of war. And it has it has these surprising long-term consequences that we directly saw after the previous election, where all of a sudden there was this confusion over whether um, the Trump administration, because of some key players in his administration that had unsavory dealings with Ukraine and Russia, that everyone just assumed for the most part that his campaign was directly colluding. Meanwhile, the Mueller report comes out saying, well, no, that wasn't this wasn't really what happened. There was certainly they didn't get in the way, right. and they, but they didn't uh, they weren't aggressively colluding. And, you know, the 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 uh, the result of that, what happened in 2016 is arguably exactly what Russia uh, and Vladimir Putin were looking for to sow confusion and lack of stability and lack of confidence in the government, in the electrical, electoral system, put aside the electric system. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, it doesn't need to change votes. It just needs to destabilize and remove confidence in the result. And you can, given, you know, at least one of the likely uh, presidential candidates in the 2020 presidential election, uh, if that candidate were to lose, one could imagine accusations about uh, jury rigged results and unfair results. And um, it's just a hornet's nest. And we've even put aside the broader issue of coming up with standards, what counts as an attack, a, a, a declaration of war, and what doesn't. You know, we really need to up our game um, at, in terms of election security. You know, and you read that New York Times article by David Sanger and one other person this week, and in between the line, one of the things it said is. It suggested very strongly is that that the military did not look for President Trump's approval. 
they basically, it appears they didn't even tell him this, they were doing this because they were concerned about their, what he might say. Um, so the hope is, regardless of what our president and his administration knows, that there are those in the military and the NSA and the CIA who are working on election security and not telling anybody about it, so it won't be stopped. I, I, you know, that's reading, freely admit speculation, reading between the lines on my part. Thanks for listening to the UNH Law Podcast. Learn more about us by visiting law.unh.edu or following UNH Law on social media. Be sure to comment and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Spotify. Opinions discussed are solely the opinion of the faculty or host and do not constitute legal advice or necessarily represent the official views of the University of New Hampshire.